You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So we welcome back Dolly Chug uh, to the podcast. Uh, We had her on with her first book, The Person You Mean to Be, and her latest book, A More Just Future, is just a stunning work. And I loved, I mean, I love Dolly. Dolly's the best. We're friends. Um, But she is just got such a big heart and a big brain, and she combines those things uh, to reckon with some real tough stuff. Uh, You're going to love this pod. I know you will. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Dolly Chug, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Kelly. I'm so excited to be back. We got the band get back together. Yes, I feel the same way. And <laughs> I want to start our conversation today with how you start your new book, because I'm married to a Minnesota girl uh, oh. whose mom made her Little House in the Prairie dolls and dresses. Oh. Uh, we still have the dolls up, up, upstairs in our attic. Uh, wow. And that's a world that enchanted you as well, right? Yes, absolutely. As a kid and also as a parent, where I you know, joined millions of others in my love for the Little House on the Prairie book series and was eager to share it with my two daughters. They were somewhere like six or seven at the time. And um, and we would sit every night and I would read to them. One would be in my lap. One would be like braiding my hair or, you know, their little six-year-old's version of braiding. And, uh, and I, over the course of 12 months, read all eight, I think it's eight books, 200 some pages each. So we really lived with the Ingalls family for that year. Um, they showed up. I, I was recently looking through my kids' old school papers that I have, you know, hoarded uh, and, and had a hard time letting go of. And I look back at like that year of what they were doing in kindergarten, first grade, and Laura Ingalls and Mary and Ma and Pa, they show up everywhere. Every time my kids mm-hmm. had to draw something, what'd you do this weekend? You know, there's Laura Ingalls somehow with our family at the park. And they really became part of their, uh, their DNA of their childhood. And so we were so invested, we thought, let's let's go on a trip. Let's go to Minnesota. Let's go to South Dakota. We're living in New York, so pretty far from those places. Let's spend a week just breathing the same air and walking mm-hmm. those prairie lands. Let's visit DeSmet. Let's visit Walnut Grove. And um, my, my girls dressed up in the prairie dresses, and they were just sort of living out all the iconic nostalgia moments. Like, as parents, you know, my husband and I were like high fiving. We're like, we totally crush in this vacation. It's <laughs> educational, and the kids are happy, and it's not, you know, breaking the bank on top of it all. And it's just a great, great, you know, we're just very smug about the whole thing. 
And then, you know, a few years went by and I started to learn a little more myself about American history. Um, and some of it I already knew, but I just somehow managed to like compartmentalize while right. I was reading them the books and taking the trip. Where I was like, wait, that little house, whose land was it on? Um, who took that land from the indigenous people who once had it? Um, what happened to those people? And you start to read and you're like, wait, there were 60 million Native Americans and over the course of a little over 100 years, that population went from 60 to 6 mm. through a variety of actions taken by the colonizers of these lands. And the Ingalls, you know, were a hardworking, well-meaning, innocent family and all that. But they were also part of the system that was, you know, doing the colonizing. And and so I realized that while I probably tissed a few, like, lines in the book that were, you know, egregiously, like, when white settlers come to a country, the, the Indians have to move on. You know, I probably went, well, that's not quite right, is it, kids? But I don't think I ever gave them a chance to see the bigger issues at play, the historical forces. And as a result, which, by the way, they were totally old enough to understand. I mean, that's like playground justice, fairness, like, they get that, right? right? They, that's that's totally age-appropriate. Um and as a result, I fed them a, a, a fable and that was very one-sided and set them up for having to unlearn it. And unlearning is so much harder than learning. And I, I think, uh, you know, our generation, I have a lot of unlearning to do. That's where this book comes from. I'm not mm -hmm. an historian. I'm a very, I was a very average history student. But I am a psychologist, and a psychologist can speak to how hard unlearning is and the emotions that come with that. Um, and what I realized is as a parent, I had also now just laid that burden on my kids as well. Now they're going to have to do their own unlearning because I didn't try to teach them this this uh, both and reality that the Ingalls family could be American heroes and they could also be colonizers. And, and so what I'm trying to do with this book is like sh offer some tools that can help us navigate those both and realities. Uh, yeah, and we just had on uh, uh, Wendy to talk about the Both And book, which is great. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so I did a keynote a few weeks back for this advocacy group that works with community health centers. And a woman came up to me after to tell me this story. And her group that she works with is called the Downwinders. Okay. So I didn't know this, but as basically thousands of, uh, uh, in New Mexico, thousands of people from Mexican communities uh, near the Trinity site where the first atomic bomb was detonated 75 years ago, developed cancer from radioactive fallout. Um, and this is sort of well-reported and, and they haven't been compensated hmm. whereas they have in other States. And I, you know, it, it was funny cause I was, I was like, I don't know what you want me to do. And she goes, I don't know either. You just seem like someone who could hear that story hmm. and could tell that story. Um, and I knew we were going to be talking and, mm -hmm. and, and I don't have, I mean, I, I guess I do live with a, a romantic view of this country. Um, but I, you know, I, I read a lot of, you know, radical <laughs> literature when I was growing up, that was also, you know, uh, uh, Zinn's work, you know, like that, mm -hmm. that, that was sort of like, there's yeah. other stuff going on. And I guess, the difficulty for people, and you talk about this in the book, is they think you need to belong in one of those camps. And I think mm. what you're saying is you're you're always going to live in a camp which has suffering and has yeah. joy, which has yeah. dark times and good times. It's impossible not to carry that because that's what being a human is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And and I think there's there's also this kind of like, either you love the our country or you don't, you know, and somehow the radical versions don't love our country. Um, I love this country deeply, like mm -hmm. so deeply um, that, you know, it's in my bones. And I, you know, I think it's a lot like parenting, you know, we can love our children and also see how our children have space to grow. And I yeah. think, Loving this country is a lot like that. When you write in the book, quote, I am scared to publish this book, 
end mm-hmm. quote. Yeah. Are you saying that to yourself? Or are you saying that to an audience? What the, <laughs> oh, God, who are you saying that like, to? You always come up with the most soul-bearing questions. Why um, not? Why not? Um, I think I, when I wrote those words, I was trying to fight the the internal voices that were making it hard for me to write. Not the usual. I mean, there's always those voices that make it hard for you to write and tell you you have nothing to say or you don't know how to say it. But these were different voices. These were the voices that were telling me I was going to be misunderstood or I was going to be attacked for these messages in a polarized, divided time. And and that I should be worried about that and I should be cautious. And I'm a cautious person by nature, so I'm like, you know, already kind of, you know, leaning too, too much in that direction. So I, I'm i scared to publish it and I'm feeling it now as we approach the launch of the book that, you know, I, I don't want to be misunderstood right. for, for what I'm trying to do here. Because you, you talk about CRT, which is obviously, the, yeah. there's an incredible example of something that's been weaponized yeah. In, in in the classic sort of fake news variety yeah. and just just doesn't seem to leave. And, and, I, and for the benefit of the audience who might not know what actual critical race theory is, do you mind just yeah. sort of touching on that? Sure, sure. So um, so critical race theory before 2020, uh, very few people Googled it. And uh, the reason was is that um, it was a very specific area of academic study uh, mostly legal scholars were um, um, spending their time thinking about how the systems of today, laws, for example, um, are function, they look race neutral, but they have emerged from racist beliefs, racist pre- precedents, racist um, systems. And so, uh, for example, drug sentences, lo- drug sentencing laws may look race neutral. They're not saying black people should be, you know, put in jail for longer than white people. There's no law that's saying that. But, um, you know, crack cocaine uh, is, has a higher, um, the, the sentencing standards are for longer jail terms, and crack cocaine is used more in black communities, whereas, I'm forgetting what the alternative is to crack cocaine. Regular cocaine. Regular cocaine. <laughs> powder cocaine. Yeah, yeah. powder cocaine um, is used more in white communities. It turns out the usage is the sim- is similar, yeah. um, if I understand it, across communities, but the penalties, the, 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 the harm the drug does, um, societal harm, individual harm, health harm is similar, but the drug pen- the, the legal penalties are much stronger for the the crack cocaine and so that's an example of something that looks race neutral but actually it's manifest as not race neutral at all um and i'm not a critical race theory scholar very few people are it was a very specific small area of study important very not small in importance but small in numbers um but it's somehow um and i the only way i could think of to explain it is like we now use critical race theory to define like everything like if there's a book about jackie robinson's life you know like right. critical race theory it was just like well he's just a black baseball player who had to fight racism but critical race theory actually has nothing to do with critical race theory as it was originally defined so the way i would try to explain it was like it says if we are using the word pomegranate to explain every food out there um anything that you eat is is we're going to just call it a pomegranate. Well, actually, that's a pizza. That's a lasagna. That's a taco. We're like, nope, mm-hmm. we're calling everything pomegranate from now on. Um, so it's it's sort of confusing in that kind of way. What's interesting is I signed the contract with Simon and Schuster to write this book in 2019, hmm. December of 2019, before the critical race theory term got turned into pomegranate and became mm-hmm. this big dividing thing in this country. So um, I was trying to, excuse me, I was trying to convince publishers and editors that people were thinking more and more about how to think about history, like how we think about the past was becoming a more important topic. And in 2019, I actually didn't have a lot of success convincing editors. The editor mm-hmm. I convinced was the one I worked with on my first book, who's amazing, Stephanie Hitchcock. Um, and she she was invested in, and got it. But by and large, it wasn't until 2020, when I was already writing the book, that it became very visible that That's yes, right. a lot of people are thinking about this. Yeah. And... And write the stories that we tell ourselves, and we know 
you as a psychologist know that we individually do that to make sense of the world, but then we have these larger stories about our nations and, and yes. then good guys and bad guys and all those things. And I found it so fascinating to the Pope just did what some people being critical of it. We're talking about his yeah. apology tour. Yes. Um, the way that Germany has not just apologized for the atrocities of the Holocaust, but continue to have laws that are yeah. very much set to make that not happen again. And yet America as a country has never apologized for slavery. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand. understand. I, know. I just don't understand. I know. So, so one one thing we I I didn't know as a mediocre history student is that those some of the amends that you're describing for example in Germany did not come immediately. It took decades to get there. Um and so and it actually came about when the trials for war crimes or I don't know if it was called war crimes but the 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 trials of um the the Nazis who had uh, led the Holocaust were televised in the 1960s yeah. and their children and their grandchildren really came to see starkly what had happened and started to push for these remembrances and this building in this cultural muscle memory so that, you know, it hopefully will not happen again. Um, recognizing that Germany, like it seems like every country right now is having its own tension between sure. these forces, but but to your point, at least there's there's physical, visible, salient artifacts of not never again. Um, so there has been, we have not in the United States apologized. We have not offered reparations. You know, we we do talk a lot. You know, about nine eleven. We talk about never forget. But it is as if we forgot. It is it is a mm -hmm. sort of confusing juxtaposition yeah yeah well you know there's this this vein and certainly in politics that you get dinged when you change your position mm -hmm. which i imagine as a scientist just drives you crazy since right. what you understand is that your science will always change you are yeah. probably wrong right right exactly right uh, good default uh there is a in your first book you provide an example about thinking about, say, pro, per, people's personal pronouns, mm -hmm. like they people think about tech. So you understand that you, mm -hmm. if you have an iPhone, for example, or any of these uh, uh, devices, you are going to get upgrades when you yeah. receive more information about how to make it work better. Right. And I have used that so many times with oh, people, and then they use it. Like, they find it as a very oh, a, 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 a strong metaphor. Awesome. You, have an, you have another one in this book. Uh, which is about dressing for the weather. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I, I told my wife, Anne, this thing, and she's like, oh, that's good. So can you <laughs> can you describe in the way in which you use that, how it relates to this topic? I love it. I mean, when you get that kind of praise from from two master storytellers, that's, that's pretty high praise. So thank you. Um, so the idea of dressing for the weather is, you know, it's the classic, you know, if you, on the day you don't bring the right layers, uh, you're going to have a miserable day out because you're going to be freezing or you didn't bring waterproof shoes or whatever the thing was. It will completely change your experience of the day. It might make you end your experience early. Um, it might make you skip the outdoors part. It certainly will affect your emotional experience of the day. It may make discourage you from going on that hike again, let's say, if that's what you were doing. So, so dressing for the weather is this really impactful set of choices we make that happens before we leave for the trip, right? I've been thinking about the 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 our our relationship with the past is this time travel we do when we want to go visit you know that little house on the prairie let's say that that is a trip into the past that time machine uh, that's taking us there and that we need to dress for that trip as well dress for that weather and the forecast is it, 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 we we seem to assume it's always going to be sunny and 70 right. degrees or whatever your version, anyone's version of perfect weather is, that that's what it's going to be. And we only dress for that. But the reality is what we we should assume is that there will always be a little bit of inclement weather. There will be something that 
that isn't quite the romantic version of history we expected. There will be something that makes us feel crummy about our family. There will be something that contradicts what we always thought was true. And now we have to like have this belief grief around that. There's gonna be something that we're in shame to we didn't know. I mean, if this was a bingo card, you know, we would be hitting different, you know. And so dressing for the weather means preparing for those emotions and that, that sort of storm that we're going to encounter so that we can stay with it. We can continue the trip. We can stay on the journey we had planned, not turn back, not skip parts, not um, say, well, never again. I'm not going to go check that out again um, because we get discouraged by these emotions. And so I early in the book, I put the dress for the weather chapter as a this is where it begins. Like none of this trip's going to work or be successful if we're not dressed for it. Yeah. I love that. And it very much ties into things that I have been working with lately. So improvisation, as you know, is, is embodied learning and that's very mm-hmm. powerful. I think that's why it, it works a lot. Um, and whether it's Annie Murphy Paul's work in the extended mind stuff that I've seen sort of in therapy and, and, and elsewhere, which is, <clears throat> the, the the we have to pay attention to our bodies because they are talking to us at all times. Mm. And I think dressing for the weather for me was sort of like, oh, that feels like that that time where I know I'm going to tense up because of I'm either triggered by something or, or whatever it is, mm. or I'm going to have shame or I'm going to have guilt. And I want you to talk to us how those are different. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to walk in into that space. And if I'm walking in, knowing that those things might come up, I can put them at bay. Yeah. And often for me, that's by tapping into curiosity. Why am I feeling that way? Yeah. You know, am I feeling that way because I identify with this group and our, our mutual friend, Heather also talks about like part of the reason we have trouble in these areas is because we just don't feel competent. Mm. I, I don't feel competent with the language. I'm not going to offend you. I don't feel competent uh, with the understanding. Uh, gender is, is a thing that I don't have a lot of uh, competency around. I have a lot of uh, empathy uh, and mm-hmm. care for people who are struggling in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't feel like I have the schema to offer much <laughs> in, in terms of that other than the good parts of me as a human uh, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so it, it may be anchoring a little bit on shame and guilt because I think that's something that people maybe conflate, but you say are different. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I draw on the research and the the sort of storytelling behind Brene Brown and mm-hmm. um, scholars like uh, uh, Becky Schomburg. Um, so the idea is that Let's say, um, you know, there is a mistake is made. I, I make a mistake. I'm, I'm, let me get concrete about it. Let's say I, um, I, uh, I don't recognize that. Uh, let me make it very specific. This is this is true. Somehow, I, you know, for fifty plus years of my life, it did not dawn on me that the Fourth of July when we talk about it being Independence Day, that it was not Independence Day for everybody, um, that it was Independence Day for men and for white men and for white men with land. I don't know how I didn't connect the dots on that, but I didn't. And so it was only in the last few years that I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's interesting that we celebrate it that way. So in that moment of recognition, of recognizing something that like seems so obvious in hindsight, I felt emotions, like not good ones about myself. And so the possible emotions that we could say that I was feeling, one might be that I'm feeling guilty. Guilt means that I feel bad about that thing that I did or that I didn't do, that I didn't know. I I am like, there is is a behavior, um, a mistake that's been made. That's the thing I feel bad about. It's it's not like me as a human being, but it's that thing I did. Uh In contrast, Shame would be, I feel bad about me as a human. Like, mm. I as a bad human didn't know that thing. Or I as an ignorant human. I as a, you know, sort of um, uh, privileged human. Or uh, whatever whatever the adjective is, I'm feeling bad at myself as a whole. And it's affecting um, my self-view. And the difference between whether I'm viewing that thing I did as bad or I'm viewing me as bad, guilt versus shame, is that the research says that when I feel guilt, I move towards action. So in this case, it might be like, well, wait, let me go watch a, you know, listen to a podcast that helps me understand 
this this distinction between July 4th and Juneteenth, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, let me go tell someone else. Maybe I'm not the only one who somehow just, you know, fell for the narrative without really thinking it through. So action. With shame, we actually move away from action. We, we tend to become less engaged. And because, like, we're feeling so bad about all of ourselves, there's really nothing to do to fix that. Now, there is, there is, there is some newer research that kind of bridges the two a little bit. So I'm, I'm being a little unnuanced in how I'm presenting it. But, but I think it's a fair sort of, you know, high level overview. And so, right, you know, a lot of people talk about white guilt, or, you know, as, as if that's kind of a blanket that explains a lot of negative emotions someone might feel. But the reality is the guilt is actually really useful and, mm-hmm. and active. It's the shame that we want to move away from because it, it, it makes it hard for us to move forward. Yeah, I mean, th- this, is, this is your first two, three classes at Second City learning improvisation is about eschewing all the shame um, uh, and, and getting you to not be in your fear brain. Uh, learn, teach you not to be in judgment of yourself or others because you cannot be creative if you're in judgment of yourself or others. You literally mm. cannot be creative. Mm. And I remember uh, when we were doing it at Francesca Gino's class at Harvard and we introduced that, she's like, I've never framed it like that. And it yeah. has changed everything for me. And I'm like, oh, huh. I mean, this is, this is lore at, at Second City. We've been doing this for 60 plus odd years. Yeah, um, wow. Yeah, it, it, again, because... We know what humans are walking into the room that's going to hold them back. Right. But the, the founders just kind of knew, and, and the exercises, which come from a social worker doing children's games, yeah. um, you know, is, is very much tied to that of like, how can I get them to emp- uh, collaborate empathetically? Yeah. Um, and so it's like, it's the garbage out and then the human stuff in, which then also recognizes that you're going to make mistakes and you're going to fail. And it is, it is, that's okay. And it's mm-hmm. not just okay. We know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we have all this shared language and value and ethic that allow us to write, write our scripts together. Oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's so powerful. And then I think the sort of the extension of the, those key principles to this kind of work, then we have to sort of, you know, the flip, the, the, the switch that gets flipped is also this, uh, but now I'm potentially doing harm to others. That's with, right. Right. With my mistakes. My mistakes are not uh, uh, trivial or they, they might not be trivial. And so how do I live with that and, and not, my fear brain really doesn't want that. No. And so it becomes, it becomes this, um, but if I but if I sit and if I stew in that, then I'm going to make the mistake again. So, like, how do I kind of break the cycle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't talk about the story much, but when we ha- started a theater in Detroit and we were working with the Illich family, um, I was staying in this apartment complex and I met this uh, woman, uh, older African-American woman, and I got to have coffee with her a couple of times. Um, and you talk about her in the book, um, oh. uh, Louise McCauley. Oh. And I um, and I want you to tell that story because I think it's really important in terms of this overall narrative and where the American narrative sort of got pushed. And 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 and. Uh, but I, I know I treasured those times because I didn't know until second meeting who she was, because uh, I knew her by a different name as does everyone in this country. Ah, oh, wow. Pretty cool. Yeah, Kelly, you've, you've, you've taken my breath away there. Um, okay, so I want to make sure I tell the story the way you would like me to tell the story. Yeah. Would you like me to tell the story the way I tell it in the book? Yep. Okay, all right. So um, so Louise McCauley was uh, an activist. She was an activist from a young age, um, a black girl whose parents actually moved homes because they were worried that the path she had to walk to school, the white kids would taunt her. They weren't as worried about the white kids taunting her. They were worried that she would never, uh, she would fight back. Yeah. And they were worried of what would happen to her if she fought back to defend herself. She had that spirit, that sense of justice, that feistiness. Um, and so as she became a young adult, she started volunteering. She uh, worked for the, she volunteered 
she had a she had a day job to pay the bills, but then she volunteered for the NAACP. Um, spent all her free time, breaks at work, evenings, in uh, the efforts to fight injustice, segregation, um, to be part of the civil rights movement. This is now the 40s, the 50s. And she um, she even would be on the phone with presidents of universities talking about uh, training their students for, for um, activism. And so... In her work as an activist, she uh, became part of an, an, a decision that the, the group she was working with made that they were going to stage um, some civil disobedience around the law that in public spaces, if a white person wanted a seat, that the black person in that seat had to yield it to them. And that they decided they were going to, um, they were going to, to not do that and that she, that she was going to be the person to take that stance. So Louise, um, uh, the day came and uh, she was told to give up her seat. She said no. The, the person in charge called the police. The police came and said, why aren't you giving up your seat? She said to them, why do you push us all around? So she was even in this moment with a police officer standing right there was, was pushing um the envelope in terms of her own courage and her own her own resistance. Um, so she doesn't age out of this feistiness she has as a kid. Um, she gets arrested, and her efforts, um, at this point she's about 42 years old, uh, she gets arrested, and this, this wasn't the first time that that a black person had refused to give up their seat and that there was some civil disobedience. But for whatever reason, this one went a little bit kind of viral, you know, 1950s viral. And it caught the attention of a minister, 26-year-old minister named Martin, Martin Luther King. And he um, joined forces with community members to start a boycott of the buses in Montgomery, which would lead to the Montgomery bus boycott. And now we might be remembering that it was Rosa Parks who wouldn't give up her seat yeah. on the bus in Montgomery to start the bus boycotts. And in fact, Louise McCauley's full name is Rosa Louise McCauley Parks. Mm-hmm. And I tell this story because I was stunned by it. Yeah. This was not how I learned the Rosa Parks story. Um, she is outside of U.S. presidents, considered the most recognized name in America, most recognized historical figure. Um, and yet what we learned about her, what we continue to teach about her, is that she was this accidental, elderly, she was 42. For the yeah, record. that's not elderly. <laughs> that's <please>. not elderly. <laughs> um, and... You know, she was tired and she wasn't trying to make a fuss. None of that is true. Oh. Jean Thea Harris is a historian who's written the definitive biography on her. The documentation for this is robust. There is no controversy over any of this. Anything I've told you, it's very clearly documented. Um, and yet we've oversimplified a wildly untrue story about her. Um and uh, and by the way, it's so interesting that you've mentioned that you've had the opportunity to meet her because we've also forgotten a lot of what happened after that in terms of yeah. what happened to her life. She Her life financially fell apart as a result yeah. of this. No one would hire her. Um, yet she continued to fight and, and be an activist. And so there's there's a whole story before that day and after that day. We don't tell the we, we don't know the truth about that day, and we don't even tell the story about the before and the after. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the after. Well, yeah. So, so this is what's maybe more depressing, but interesting is okay. So that that this actual story got turned into essentially a fable, which is not yes. true. Yes. Um, when I when I was recalling, because Anne's like, you remember when you hung out with Rosa Parks? I'm like, yes. And I'm like, and I'm trying to remember all this, and I and I. In my mind, I had tied it together because we had done this partnership with the Illiches, who are partners for Second City of Detroit, and they are the people who um, own Little Caesars, uh, Detroit okay. Red Wings, you know, all, all that. Okay. Uh, and 
the what I had heard or remembered, and indeed a cursory search was that oh, that Mike Illich, who recently passed away, was mm-hmm. very much lauded because he paid for her rent uh, in, oh. in this this complex, which is why I was in this complex because it was like an Illich-owned building. Then I decided to go a slight deeper dive. Okay. And um and and there's no definitive truth that I'm arriving at, but but it does appear that he did not pay for her, you know, the rest of her years. Might have thrown in a couple months free rent. Might have done like like certainly probably did a a nice gesture here and there. Yeah. But the 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 this part got fabulized because this wasn't someone who had a lot of wealth. This was like a me like helping holding a door some me being chatty because you know what i'm like and then and then figuring out this is who who they are um but yeah she it wasn't like she rosa parks as we know it should have been taken care of yeah and she wasn't yes and she wasn't and and none of our none of our activists are none of them past or present um you know a lot of times there's there's like, oh, they're doing it for the attention or, you know, the money. There's very rarely attention or money that comes in any positive form for people who are viewed as divisive. I mean, this is Todd Cashton's The Art of Insubordination is just like yeah. you read these stories and you're like, it's so important that these trailblazers exist and they all get screwed. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. bad. They, they really badly. They really badly. And, and you know, and, and, and then we, in the you know, Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, you know, we look back and our hindsight bias leads us to be like, well, of course that happened. Of course, you know, we all listened to Rosa. I mean, we didn't actually listen to Rosa. um, And and that's why there had to be a bus boycott. And that's why we had to sort of bring a whole city to its knees. And that's why people had to risk their lives. And it wasn't just then, it was before and it was after and it still is. And um, somehow that fable that you described is really seductive. Um, But it's, it's you know, it's funny though, because it's like, and we're we're adults and we can handle like big, big, big boy, big girl stories. And yet we, we allow ourselves to just be seduced by these little kids stories. It's, it's yeah. Strange. I don't, that, that's my question. My question would be like, do we, do we think we can't handle the truth? Do, do we worry that our loved ones can't handle the truth? Because yeah. I don't know. We were talking about this before the podcast that, that, you know, in, in, in the various traumas I've gone through, I was very public about it. And in so yeah. doing, people shared their traumas with me. And I yeah. learned I was not alone. Yeah. I was not alone. And yeah. and in terms of reading the literature and in all these different areas, it's like, well, that these relationships are what save us. Yeah. Because because many of us go through a variety of traumas. And um so it's like do we just not trust each other enough mm. to tell the truth about the past? That's interesting. I don't know. Uh, there's not an answer. Uh, it's not even really a question. All right. I'm in a moment. I'm going to ask you for a thank you because story. Oh, but, but before, ah. but, but before we do that, um, there's <laughs> a there's a paragraph that you wrote um, that I absolutely love. I think it's gorgeous writing, um, and I, and the idea of it is great too. Quote. We expect that loving our country means we will always like it. We feel entitled to a world in which the good guys win and in which we are always the good guys. We feel entitled to having our consistency cravings satisfied. The sense of entitlement makes us less likely to do the work we need to do to create a more just future for our country. Sometimes our country, this country we love, breaks our heart. Mm. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> Dude. We welling up. It's so beautiful, and it's because because the 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 yearning for America is there. This is like a Simon and Garfunkel song. It's like <laughs> it's there. It's it's the love is there. That's the problem. Oh, that's the problem. That's the Patriots dilemma. The Patriots yes. dilemma. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for reading that. Um, I remember writing it too. I uh, I re- I read I reread Bird by Bird. Right before mm-hmm. I wrote that um, by Anne Lamott. And, Anne Lamott, and, yeah. Yeah, and I felt like it sort of, you know, that if anyone's ever read that, like it really sort of pushes you to your most vulnerable edge. That's right. That's right. 
So before, again, before the thank you, because like you finished writing the book, Mm -hmm. where, where's your headspace? Mm -hmm. What changed? Since, since writing, since, since I finished. Yeah. Um, well, I think one, it's not a change as much as like a expansion is that it's blowing my mind how, like, how little I still know. I mean, I, I really, I really am not, I don't even know if I get the history channel. Like I'm not super invested in history. I'm like not a history buff at all. So it's kind of weird. They wrote this book, but, but I do feel like I learned something while I wrote it and sort of, you know, felt kind of proud of that. And then what's changed since then is it's like, I've realized just how little I know. I mean, you know, recently the queen of England died. Um, and there's all, you know, there's lots of there. Like with the colonizing and the the Africa and and I'm just like whoa. I mean, I'm the child of parents uh, of the partition. You know, my my husband's parents and my parents were all children during the partition that split India and Pakistan. They all four became refugees. This was all because uh, you know England. Uh, had colonized India and like all the things that sort of around that. So I am like pretty directly affected. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet, <laughs> and yet <laughs> it is amazing what it would take to decolonize my brain. So, so I think that's, that's where um, I realized is that I've written a book that kind of s- positions me as farther along in this journey than I think I, I am. I think I've, I think I know what tools I need, but I I don't even think I've started the journey yet. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I suspect the journey doesn't end. Never ends. It certainly doesn't end. Yeah, I just, I just, uh, I thought maybe I had reached like a rest stop or something, but I don't think I have. I think that's fair. I think you deserve a rest stop on, on occasion. That's fine. On occasion, you yeah. pick, pick up a, a different kind of parka you might need to dress for the weather. <laughs> exactly. Check well, the this, this factors in perfectly with thank you because being this idea of what happens when you can't, I, I'm not going to yes and a genocide. Uh, but yeah. I live in this country, yeah. Right. So, so yeah. how do I how do I thank how, how do I bring out a certain gratitude in my in my brethren um, and find some point of connection so that we can continue the difficult conversation? Yeah, yeah. So I might need some coaching because I really I think this is a great tool and I want to get better at it. I mean, what, so so do you mind? Can I talk it through with you yeah. instead of offering sure. a clean story? And then yeah. if you want me to re-say it cleanly. I'm happy to. So the ex- example that came to my mind is the interview I did with Mayor Mitch Landrieu, yeah. um, who was mayor of New Orleans. And um, he uh, was trying to lead the rebuilding of the city after Hurricane Katrina and and had had lunch with his dear friend, Wynton Marsalis, the, the very famous musician, and asked for his help in the rebuilding effort. And uh, Marsalis said, of course, I'm happy to help. I love this city like you do. And I want your help on something. Um, we need to take down those Confederate monuments on public right. lands. And uh, Land- Mayor Landrieu re- remembers how surprised he was. He was like, wait, I don't even, I walk by those monuments all the time. I haven't really thought about them. Um, That's the problem. And, and, yeah. And as context, uh, Mayor Landrieu is a multi-generational New Orleans family. His father was mayor of New Orleans. He's deeply, deeply, his entire family is deeply committed and invested in the city. So it was sort of particularly like, wow, that like this hadn't come to his mind. Um, and it began this effort that would lead to something that, that uh, you know, some people say, you know, is defined as career, positively, negatively, of uh, massive undertaking that involved every branch of government to get permissions to take down these four monuments, um, he had to uh, guarantee anonymity to the crane operators because there were so many threats to anybody who would participate in this effort that he couldn't get, you know, suddenly every crane in the state of Louisiana was unavailable for this effort. Um, So it was such an undertaking. And, And so I think, I think the thank you because in here is, I don't think he would feel, um, I don't think he would, I, I mean, he obviously doesn't endorse the Confederate monuments that, that so clearly were born of the, the effort 
a few decades after the end of the Civil War to sort of establish the superiority of the white man to the yeah. to to the to the um, black man or the white people to the black people. So he doesn't endorse that, but I think he might say thank you because this has allowed us this conf- this conversation about monuments has allowed us to center what we all share in our beliefs and our values and center what we care about with the city moving forward. Um, like who we want to be as a city. It's like created a conversation around that. Is that, is that how because yeah, works? Sure. Of course. And, and it actually makes me think of Lighty Klotz's uh, work in subtract rate writes about monuments or, uh, as, as being yeah. these things that come together before the civilization comes together. Right. Yeah. So, the, the, and that was sort of stunning to me of being like, well, it must have been everything was set and then you build a monument. It's like, nope, you built Ugh. the monument to have this shared coming together. And even though that was people who felt aggrieved and, and could be rooted in their racism or, or whatever, it's still the bonding agent of that. Just like it, just like trauma gets passed down yeah. to the body. So, so does that. And so I would think that would make it one very empathetic uh, that it's not just a stone slab to, yeah. to to one person, but also recognize it's also a very dark memory for that that's pro- that's worse for this other community. Yeah. But but yeah. we can all. I mean, that's the great thank you because of, of, of that is because I don't think he loses his understanding. Uh, the mayor of, of that's that's allowing the crane operators to be covered, and yeah, it's thorny. It is thorny. It is thorny. And it was interesting to talk to him because, I mean, he's just like a, I mean, it was the only time I've ever interacted with him directly. And he's like a shot of adrenaline. I mean, you just like, whatever he's selling, I want it. Like he's Mm -hmm. just, you know, and his love of his city is just contagious. And he spoke with such passion about this this community, the, 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 the history of it. That at one point in the interview, I kind of had to call a timeout and be like, I'm just a little confused, Mayor. Like, I wanted to interview you about your decision to, to, to remove part of your city's history, to tear something down. And all you've talked about is building stuff and, like, building the city and building this community. And, like, where's the connect? You know, and I, was this, I wasn't yet thinking in terms of paradox yeah. mindset when I interviewed him. And he was like, well you know, most of the time you live in a contradiction. Like, that's just how life works. You do both. And I was like, oh, yes. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> Fair point, sir. You know? And so so I think he was using this as a moment to sort of not solve the contradiction, but to just say, hey, everybody, look, we got a contradiction here. What are we going to do? What are we going to build? Hmm. And then the act of building maybe becomes... Um, in some sense, it's it's a, a new coming together. Exactly, I think that's what it is. It's like it's it's like, like he talked about, um, you know, he said if I'm walking by these monuments all the time and not thinking about them and not grasping what they represent, what else am I walking by and not noticing? What laws am I not noticing are problematic? What sort of norms am I not recognizing? So it, it's become sort of this. Um, Again, a thank you because it becomes like if I'm going to start noticing this, I'm going to start noticing more things, and and that's that's a gift. Fantastic. The book is called A More Just Future: Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. Dolly Chug, thank you so much for coming back to the pod. Oh, Kelly Leonard, you're my hero. Thank you for having me. Right back at you. The Getting to Yes and podcast is produced by the Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive 